ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land. Today, how worrying about your memory might be in your genes and not an indication of true memory loss. Another nail in the coffin of opioid painkillers. How well do sports foods live up to their on-package claims? But first, I used to be intimidated by the weights sections of gyms. It's a very male-dominated area. I have memories of sweaty dudes curling weights aggressively into the mirror. It's the sort of thing you're known for, Norman. Oh, absolutely. But I do remember a New Yorker cartoon from a few years ago <laughs> of some Romans, ancient Romans, standing around in a circle with their togas on and they're holding the togas over their arm. And one guy's saying to the others, look, if you hold your toga just like this, it really shows off the biceps. <laughs> Some things never change. Well, anyway, in the intervening years since uh, that ancient cartoon and now, I have gotten over my pumping iron phobia. And I think gyms are more inclusive environments than they used to be. But what continues to be a male-dominated area is the science behind the recommendations for resistance training. And it's something that Mandy Hagstrom has been looking into in some detail. Yeah, you're right. I mean, resistance training has changed so much in terms of who's participating in resistance training. But our recommendations, unfortunately, haven't caught up. So we examined all of the governing body consensus statements. So that's the people that make the decisions and inform what we're told to do in the gym. So people like the American College of Sports Medicine or the Australian Strength and Conditioning Association. So we examined all of their statements that tell people how to exercise and had a look at the literature that actually informed or guided those statements. And what did you find? We found an overwhelming, well, actually not too surprising, disproportionate use of male data. So in the studies that informed both adult and youth guidelines, we found approximately 70% of the data referenced in these statements was drawn from males compared to only approximately 30% in females. Why is this a problem? Well, I think it's a problem because... Males and females are different. We have a bunch of different, a different physiological state at rest, but also with exercise. So we have different levels of muscle mass and strength, but we also have different responses to fatigue. So because we fatigue differently, you know, maybe we need to exercise differently. We have different lung sizes. We have different oxygen consumptions. I mean, to be honest, I could go on for for quite a while about our differences in response to exercise. So... What does this mean if we're if we're basing our recommendations on data that isn't representative? What does this mean for women's sport and other sort of performance settings? Yeah, I think that's a really key point. Women's professional sports, they've been rising rapidly over recent years and the interest in women's sports has also rapidly increased. So resistance training, it's unique. It confers benefits that other types of exercise don't. So it's the gold standard for getting you bigger and getting you stronger muscles. And that's really important for sport. So in my mind, the difference or the, I guess, the negative of the data being drawn from males is we simply don't know if the exercise programs we're using are best practice for females. So sure, we can train the same and we'll get benefit. But what if we needed to train slightly differently to get the best possible outcome for females who are playing sport? 
that real elite sort of where that very small amount of increase might actually be the difference between winning and losing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, at the top level, it's a fraction of a percent often between, you know, gold and silver or even by qualifying for the Olympics, it can be a fraction of a second or, you know, a tiny margin. I mean, I guess being, you know, pragmatic for the general population, most of us probably don't do the appropriate amount of exercise as it is, right? So for the general population, whether or not our programming is varied by sex might not have quite such an impact. But I mean, it might too, because we differ, females differ across the lifespan. We differ when we reach menarche, we differ throughout pregnancy, we differ throughout the menstrual cycle, and we differ in menopause. So there is a whole host of changes even within the female lifespan that may necessitate best practice exercise programming to change. What about trans or non-binary people? Yeah, so very little of the research um, has been conducted with trans and non-binary people. In these statements, there is basically no reference or guidelines for exercise for trans or non-binary people. So when we analysed our data, we had to analyse it in a binary manner because at the moment, that's the only way in which the data is presented. Of course, I should have mentioned intersex folks there as well. Intersex individuals are also underrepresented in the research and aren't mentioned in a lot of these guidelines. So we're talking specifically about sex and gender in this conversation, and that's what your study looked at, but that's not the only way you can divide up the human population. Are there other divisions that we should be looking at if we're thinking about optimising sports performance that also isn't being captured in the data the way we currently have it? Yeah, oh gosh, open a minefield. Um, I mean, we've just spoken about sex, but we haven't actually touched on gender. And I think gender is also really important because it can influence sport and sports performance in a number of ways that we haven't even considered. So I think a really great example to explain the differences between sex and gender is to look at things like ACL injuries. So ACL injuries are knee injuries that are common in athletes and they're more common in females. They're also really common in female youth athletes. Now, we for years have focused on the biology of, you know, the background of these injuries. Is it because females have wider hips, they have different ligament laxity? What's the biological cause? And we haven't really looked at gender. And I think the research in the space now is really starting to understand how gender influences injury as much as sex, if not possibly more. So an example here is where gender could influence ACL is when girls grow up, they tend to stop playing as much sport as boys. So that can mean things like, you know, reduction in training of motor patterns and fundamental movement skills, exposure to less types of sport and movement, exposure to less strength and conditioning opportunities. So the gender is actually influencing the outcome rather than the sex. That is so interesting. So so there's plenty of work to be done here. This particular study that you've just released looks is it basically an audit of what's currently in the space. What are your recommendations? Where should we be going from here? Yeah, so from here, I think one of the first things we need to do is we need to actually address who is conducting the research. So that was one of the other points that we looked at. We didn't just look at the sex of the participants included in the studies. We examined who was conducting this research and we looked at gender here because gender is influenced, um, you know, it's our sociocultural identity. So what we found here is that 91% of all of the first authors leading these statements were men, and only 13% of all authors were women. 
Now, this matters because work in other fields like cardiovascular research shows that when women lead research studies, they are more likely to report data in a sex disaggregated manner. So that's where we can see the differences in males and females. And they're actually more likely to recruit female participants. So I think if we want to have the answers, we need to be looking at the leadership in terms of who's doing this research. And then perhaps, you know, why is the research on females not making its way to these statements? Mandy, it's always great to chat. Thank you so much for joining me. No worries. Thanks for having me on. Dr Mandy Hagstrom is an exercise scientist and senior lecturer at the University of New South Wales. So the evidence is a little patchy on resistance training, at least as far as women are concerned. Just as well, active folks can trust everything about sports foods, right? Mm -hmm. Well, are you familiar with what I mean by sports foods, Norman? Well, when we used to go climbing in the Scottish Highlands, we'd take Kendall mint cake you know, so <laughs> to uh, get us through. But I suspect you're talking about protein in various forms, like powders, bars, shakes, and carbohydrate gels, all that sort of, um, I want to say crap, but, you know, probably is, <laughs> you know, it depends on what you're going to say next, I suppose. As much as I'd like to speak in a lot more detail about whatever Kendall's mint cake is, uh, exactly, you're right, exactly right. Things like protein powders, pre-workouts. And Celeste Chapel from Deakin University has been looking at these products and her findings suggest that you can't believe everything you read, even on the packaging of the food itself. Initially, the idea was to examine the claims that are displayed on the packaging. So we know that different claims can have an impact on what people purchase. So we decided to look at that. And then when we were doing the analysis, we kind of thought, okay, well, we've got this nutrition information panel information, which tells us how many grams of this is in it, how many grams of that's in it. So how about we also look at that? So we then took all of the information from the nutrition information panels and analysed that as well. And that was where we kind of came up with one of our most interesting findings mm -hmm. from the study. What's that? When we calculated the macronutrient content, so, you know, protein, fat, carbohydrate and fibre, the kilojoule amount that we got actually did not match what was stated on the packet. Oh, for a lot of the foods. Because you often see them, I'm thinking of like bars that I have grabbed and eaten from supermarkets before. It's like, you know, 20 grams of protein or whatever. And mm. then it sort of also says, you know, it's like it's a low carb thing or it's a low fat thing. Mm, exactly. So those claims are based off what's on the nutrition information panel. So then we were sort of thinking, okay, well, 30%, so 30% of the products that we analysed had incorrect calculated energy content. And we thought, well, if the energy content's incorrect, we obviously can't sort of tell which nutrient it is that's not correct. We're not doing kind of testing of the contents of the actual food, just what's stated on the label. We thought, well, if that's the case, then that could potentially mean that those claims that are saying things like 20 grams of protein might actually also be inaccurate. But, yeah, I guess we were kind of most concerned with the lack of prescribed name and warning advisory statements, which these foods should have. And then we we're also surprised about the amount that were under the calculated energy content. Can you talk to me more about what do you mean by prescribed name and warning? So these foods in Australia, you know, there's regulations from Food Standards Australia and New Zealand. So there's a food standards code for these foods. And that states that they have to have what's called a prescribed name. 
which is formulated supplementary sports food. And they also need to have a warning, an advisory statement that sort of says, you know, these foods can only be consumed in line with a good diet. They shouldn't be consumed by anyone who's pregnant or under the age of 15. Just the basic kind of warnings around who should be consuming them, how you should be using them. So we found that from the initial collection, I think it was 558 products, probably just under half, 50%, had those proper warning statements and prescribed name displayed on them. Wow. So what should should people take away from this? Should they not be choosing these products at all? I think the key message is people really need to think about whether they actually need it because I feel like there's been a real kind of increase in the amount of people thinking that it's like a magic bullet sort of scenario, you know. Oh, if I have the protein powder, I'm going to gain all of this muscle. Well, yeah, sure. But at the same time, you can actually get that protein from food. So if you're just, you know, like a a weekend warrior or you're like a recreational, you know, sports person, so you do your couple of days a week at the gym or whatever it is, you realistically, I think that people need to rethink, you know, whether they need these foods because they are essentially ultra processed foods. So thinking, could I get this from diet? Mm. And do these foods need to be better regulated than they currently are? Like there are regulations, like you say, but it sounds like they're not actually being put into place or being policed. There are regulations in place. I think it is very difficult to police them as well because we do have a lot of imported products. I think tighter regulation around the types of claims and the pieces of information that can be found on the packaging. And just to give people a clearer idea of what they're actually getting, that things like the prescribed name and the warning statement should be on the packaging. They should be anyway, but that needs to be a bit more kind of tighter. But then also in terms of your foods like pre-workout and those high caffeine supplements, I think there probably just needs to be a bit more kind of regulation around where they can be sold or available because ultimately it is a safety issue. When you're talking about high caffeine foods, you could have people who are under 15 going into Coles and just buying some pre-workout because it's fun to try, those kind of things. So there is like a real issue with misuse, I think. Celeste, thanks so much for joining me. No worries. Thanks, Tegan. Celeste Chappell is a PhD candidate in the Institute of Physical Activity and Nutrition at Deakin University. You're listening to The Health Report. Not a single mention of Kendall Mint Cake. I'm disappointed. (laughs) There's probably not one of us who hasn't at some point gone into a panic that we're losing our memory. We've forgotten a name is the usual thing. Now, this isn't an issue that's exclusive to older people. Some people have had worries about memory from early adulthood. And the question, just as when we come forward with memory worries later in life, is does this mean I'm going to develop dementia? Well, a fascinating study of twins from their late 30s through to their late 60s has asked them about their so-called subjective memory loss, meaning the feeling or worry that your memory isn't what it should be, and compared that subjective feeling to how well their memory is actually working when measured properly. The results are reassuring and suggest that it's your genes which may be what's really worrying you. Dr. Tyler Bell of the University of California, San Diego, was the lead author. What we found was that over a third reported memory problems all the way back at age 38, and a lot of that carried over stably over time. So if you screen them at age 67, a lot of them were reporting memory problems just because they reported it as early as age 38. 
And the twin model let us show that that was a heritable trait, maybe related to personality and your mood regulation, but it's something that is definitely carrying forward as you age. Now, there are other things going on here genetically that can predict mm -hmm. memory problems, such as there's this gene called APOE4, which increases your risk of dementia, as well as measuring their objective memory. So in other words, you found that there was no relationship, as far as I understand it, between whether you were worried about your memory at age 38 and whether or not you objectively lost memory. What about the genetics? Yeah, exactly. I was um, still surprised with our findings that there wasn't any real correlation with the APOE for allele or the polygenic risk score for Alzheimer's disease, but it was really heavily influenced by the anxiety and neuroticism genetic risk score. Now, we've just got to be careful about this. What you found was, it's what the geneticists call pleiotropy, which is where you get the same genes doing different things in the body. And from what I understand of your results is that the genes that may make you more subjectively concerned about your memory are also genes which increase your risk of anxiety and depression. Exactly. And those are also risk factors for dementia. So I think that maybe they're not directly related to Alzheimer's disease. So the question is, at any age, did you find that subjective memory concerns were related to objective memory loss? We did not find anything with the type of measures we were using. So we used memory measures that are common in clinics. They just ask you, like, how worried are you about your memory? Do you think you have trouble with your memory? And you just can't capture a lot of variation there. But we do know that when you ask about decline in the last 10 years with a time point, you can start to pick up on some cognitive decline over time. Now, this was men only, male twins. Women are more prone to dementia than men. Have you got any data mm -hmm. on women, on female twins? Female twins, we haven't done any data analyses on. I believe there's individuals in Australia that are doing this research and also finding that it's really heritable and more of a sex-inclusive sample. But I do think that the gender differences and sex differences are really important because, as you said, women are at greater risk. And we do find some sex differences in just the baseline levels of reporting of subjective memory concerns. I'd be really interested to see what that looks like at age 36 for women. So what are the practical outcomes from this? Because the problem here would be let's say, a general practitioner saying, don't worry about subjective memory loss, it's because you're anxious or depressed. I mean, that's yeah. kind of the worst thing that a GP could say to a patient. So what, what's terrible. the practical outcome? Somebody listening to this and they have got concerns about their memory yeah. and they're in their early 40s, late 30s, early 40s. Mm -hmm. What are the practical implications or outcomes of this research? I've always believed that health symptoms are really informative and that people, when they speak about conditions like pain or memory problems, that those are experiences they're actually having. And it just means that we need to take a more tailored approach. So if individuals are coming in and say that they have a memory problem, they kind of fall into a system of, oh, yeah, it makes sense. Like your mother had dementia, so now you're developing it. And it can really start leading them to get their independence taken away from them. Your home situation changed. So if we actually screen and see, is it just anxiety and depression, we can do a better job of detecting whether or not we should be really concerned. And there are better measures that we should be using. So instead of just asking older adults at the clinic, do you have memory problems? We need to help them with better questions and asking them about decline recently and how they feel compared to other people at their age and give them a chance to actually speak about their memory more directly. And your research doesn't answer this question, but presumably... The implication here is that if somebody is depressed or anxious, treating mm -hmm. that could help concerns about subjective memory loss. Yes, and those should definitely be addressed because, you know, even if without dementia, subjective cognitive concerns can lead to a lot of functional problems as you age. 
you know, in addition to greater depression and anxiety because you're so worried about your memory. Um, it can also lead to, you know, your social network getting trimmed and being more lonely over time. It can lead to more problems being able to do activities of daily living. So helping people and figuring out how we can best improve their current situations based on their memory problems, I think is a good goal for aging regardless of dementia risk. But bottom line is, if uh, somebody's listening to this, then they've been worried about their memory since they can remember, so to speak. This is not an indication that they're going to be heading for Alzheimer's disease. Exactly. And this is a big concern because, you know, there's recent trials and FDA approvals for Alzheimer's risk-reducing drugs that remove amyloid out of the brain. And those are just going to become more common over time and more available to people. They're very expensive. But people could use something about you reporting memory problems as a reason to push you into some type of trial that you don't really need. And so it's really important that we ask better questions about this. Tyler Bell, thanks very much for joining us. No problem. Thank you for having me. Dr. Tyler Bell is in the Center for Behavioral Genetics of Aging at the University of California, San Diego. A high proportion of Australians with back or neck pain are prescribed opioids. Those are morphine-like narcotics, despite the risks of addiction and side effects. Now, these risks might be manageable if the benefit is significant, but that's not the case according to what's probably the world's best trial to date on opioids in acute back pain and neck pain. According to the authors, it means that clinical guidelines for doctors, which advise them on evidence-based treatment, need to be changed. And for you and me, it means we need to think about non-drug ways to control the pain and get better. Professor Christine Lynn was the senior author on the paper, and Christine is at the Institute for Musculoskeletal Health at the University of Sydney. Welcome to the Health Report, Christine. Thanks for having me, Norman. What is that statistic of people, you know, the extent to which people are treated for opioids for acute back and neck pain in Australia? So we know that about 40% of people who go to see their general practitioner and up to 70% of people who present to emergency department with back and neck pain get prescribed an opioid. So indeed, it's a very high proportion of people. And just describe the trial that you did. Yeah, so in this trial, we um, recruited 347 people with acute low back pain and neck pain from either general practice or from people presenting to the emergency department. And we randomly allocated them to receive either an opioid or a matching placebo. So something that looked like the opioid, but had otherwise had no active ingredients. Both groups of people also receive what we call guideline care, so reassurance from their doctor that their pain will get better um, and also advice to stay active. And what was the opioid you used? We used um, a modified release opioid called oxycodone. So it's oxycodone combined with naloxone, which is an inactive, um, combina- inactive ingredient in this combination, but um, to offset the, some of the effects, side effects of opioids. I don't want to use a brand name, but wouldn't GPs and others more commonly use something like Panadine Fort, which has got codeine and Panadol together? Well, in our previous research, we actually showed that um, oxycodone is the number one opioid prescribed for people with low back pain and neck pain. And that's partly the reason why we went with this combination. So what were your findings? So, yeah, so we follow people regularly up to one year after they started the study. And our main primary interest was what their pain was like at six weeks. That's at the maximum treatment period. Um, And we found that um, there was no difference in pain intensity be- between the people who took opioids and people who took placebo. And what about quality of life and rehabilitation and so on? 
Yeah, so the main outcome was pain intensity. So that was what we were most interested in. Um, in most outcomes, what we saw was this, there was no difference in, um, in any benefits um, conferred by the opioids. What we saw, though, in a few outcomes, such as mental um, quality of life in the mental aspect, there was a slight um, benefit favoring those people in the placebo group. And did you get any signal about misuse? Yeah, so we in this study, what's unique about it is we follow people up to one year after they started taking the opioids. And at one year, we asked them in a questionnaire, you know, whether they used opioids in a way that's different from prescribed by their, the way that was prescribed by the doctor. And indeed, we found that in the opioid group, there was a slight, there was an increase in opioid misuse um, compared to those in the placebo group. Now, what some people might say to this study is, well, that's fine, you're measuring it over six weeks, but sometimes you know, the GP might say or the person with the acute back saying, this, look, oxycodone will just get me over the hump in the first week and then I'll just go on to paracetamol or ibuprofen. Yeah, and, and like I said, our pain, uh, our primary outcome was pain at six weeks, but we also measure other pain at other time points, including we ask people to record their pain every day from the start of them taking opioids. And what we saw was even from day one, there was no, um, no signal to show that people in the opioid group had lower um, pain scores. And that was quite obvious even within the first seven days as well. One of the things that have been said in the past is that, look, if you don't get on top of the acute back pain, this is what's been taught by some pain specialists, if you don't get on top of the pain straight away, you're risking chronic pain. So you've really got to jump on it, which is why a lot of GPs, you know, they've heard that from the people that have taught them about pain, and they've said, oh, you've got to jump on it and control it, otherwise you're going to get chronic pain. Is there any evidence of um, a change in direction in terms of you know, the, the pathway to chronic pain from acute pain? Well, what we're seeing with this study and also other studies that we have done, other groups have done, is that taking medicine in general doesn't actually relieve the pain the way that we thought that medicines were going to relieve pain. This is in chronic pain. This is in acute pain, actually. So in acute low back pain, through a few other studies that we've done, including this one looking at opioids, we show that taking medicine really doesn't um, add any treatment benefit to what you can do to help your pain. And that is if you can stay active, um, if you can stay out of bed um, and, and move about, that's probably the best thing to help you get on top of the pain. We've had you and your colleagues on talking about these other research projects, which shows that paracetamol is pretty ineffective. Non-steroidals are not that effective. I mean, what's, I mean, people want something from their GP and they're going to feel disappointed or uncertain if they go away from the GP with nothing. Is there anything that helps at all medicinally? Um, in terms of medicines, yeah, most medicines really don't have a lot of benefits in treating acute low back pain or neck pain. Um, you mentioned non-steroidals. Um, they actually, out of all the medicines you mentioned, they have been shown to have um, some modest effects in managing, um, in managing acute low back pain. So if pain relief is... Um, if the use of pain medicine is an option, then that would be the medicine to, to consider. So in, in, in balance then, why do you think there is this non-response to painkillers? I mean, does, does it go beyond low back pain? What, what, you'd think that if you've got something that's called a painkiller, it's going to work. 
Yeah, and indeed, so we've we've looked at opiates for other acute pain conditions as well. So what we're starting to see is that opioids in general um, may not have the same effects as we first thought. So we've done, for example, another um, systematic review to look at the use of opioids for acute musculoskeletal pain management in people with uh, people presenting to the emergency department, and that also showed that opioids were no better than non-opioid medicines. So I think um, I think over the next few years we might start to see more of this type of research to um, to show that opioids may not be any better than non-opioids or or placebo in these type of conditions. Interesting and important research. Christine, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Norman. Professor Christine Lynn, who's in the Institute for Musculoskeletal Health at the University of Sydney, and we'll have a link to that study on the Health Report's website. And that is the Health Report for this week. It is indeed, but we'll see you again next Monday. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.